This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson vill jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, Carlson, By the way, we, that's French for yes, you guys get it, right? Welcome everybody to another episode of the Keenan Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the best fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys at 1.0, Eric Carlson, in their keeper pools. I'm your host, Dylan Dubrowski. With me, as always, the fantasy hockey robot himself, Brian Calm. Hello, Elon. Hello, everybody. What a pleasure to be joining you again. These two-week breaks between shows seem kind of long, especially when you have some NHL news happening In between them, we had the Vegas expansion, the lists of exposed players released today. There were some trades. Can't wait to get to it all. Yeah, it's kind of like if we would have done an episode last week, we wouldn't even had that much to say, at least in terms of topical things. It's a good thing we waited. Now we have a lot to talk about. I'm very excited about it. We also have a bonus episode coming to you next week. Let me get into a little bit of scheduling because there's a big week coming up in terms of there's going to be the Vegas expansion draft itself, where we're going to see which players they actually take from all of these exposed players. There's also going to be the NHL entry draft, and we're going to be having a special guest, Cameron Robinson, to help break down all of the prospects that are taken in the entry draft. So it's going to be a really fun show next Sunday, a bonus summer episode. We normally go once every two weeks, but just for our valued listeners, we're going to give you a bonus one next week. It's going to be at 7.30, by the way, for those of you who want to join us live. But okay, Brian, let's focus on this week. Like you said, we've got trades. We've got these protected players. And we actually have some other content we wanted to talk about, which has nothing to do with what happened in the past week. We want to talk about some players who had really impressive seasons that went beyond our expectations. And we're going to look into whether or not we think they can repeat these seasons or whether they were aberrations. Before we get to all of that, let's mention that we are presented by DauberHockey.com, which is the best fantasy hockey website out there. There's actually some sad news to report for some of you who haven't heard. Uh, Daryl Dobbs, the founder, runner of the site, is ill. He has a rare bone marrow cancer called MDS, and we're all rooting for him to, to get better. Like, if you want to help support him in this time, Brian's going to tell you some links to, you know, help people who have this condition. And also, you know, if you want to help Dauber Hockey, you just need to do the things that we've always been telling you to do anyways, the things that you're doing anyways, because you want to be successful in your fantasy pools in terms of going to their site, you know, checking out all of their breakdowns of trades. Like these trades that we're going to be talking about, they were all broken down really well, right as they happened at DauberHockey.com. One thing I've never mentioned before, by the way, when you go to a website like that to check out all of their amazing content, you actually can help a lot by turning off your ad blocker because that's how they make money is the ad. So if you want to really be nice, go to DauberHockey.com, check out all their great content and turn off that ad blocker. Wow, what a considerate web browser you are. 
No pun intended. Anyway, uh, Elon, like you mentioned, Dabra shared the news that he is he's fighting uh, this this form of cancer. Uh, he put up a post on his website over DabraHockey.com. You can find it there. Um, if you're wondering, uh, like, you know, is there something I can do? What can I do to help? Like, is there somewhere I can donate or, or whatever? One thing I did uh, right when seeing the news was to head on over to uh, the Canadian Blood Services One Match site, which is a way uh, that they build a registry of blood marrow donors. And uh, how it works is you just you read some questions, you like like a fact, and then you answer a quick quiz, you sign up, and then they send you a, a kit in the mail to just like swab your cheek to see who you'll be a match with uh, genetically, who you'll be able to donate bone marrow to. And uh, it's a really easy process. I did it in like less than 20 minutes. And that was probably taking it real slow too, because I read everything very carefully. And one thing I learned is that it's only something like you can only donate bone marrow if you're between the ages of 17 and 35. So I'm actually getting on the high end of that. So I signed up right away. And if you want to, mind you, this doesn't necessarily help Dauber directly, but you are contributing to anybody who is fighting a similar disease and, uh, and helping build the bank of potential donors, you can head on over to keepingcarlson.com slash Dauber, C-A-N, if you're in Canada, and that'll redirect you to the Canadian Blood Services site, who uh, they're the ones responsible for building that database in Canada. Or if you're in America, you can go to keepingcarlson.com slash Dauber US, and that'll redirect you to the Be The Match organization, which takes care of it over on the American side of things. If you're elsewhere in the world, just do a quick Googling and I'm sure you can figure it out. Again, the links in Canada, keepingcarlson.com slash Dauber can. And the links for Americans is keepingcarlson.com slash US. And uh, of course it goes with that saying, our thoughts are with Dauber through this whole thing and uh, uh, we're rooting for him. Yeah, definitely. That's keepingcarlson.com slash Dauber US, by the way, if you're in the US. Yeah, we're rooting for Dauber. He's a fighter. I'm sure he's going to get through this. And in the meantime, we're going to keep pushing out fantasy hockey content. And he's, by the way, is going to be still working on these guides and stuff. So you can check all that out at DauberHockey.com for all of your fantasy hockey needs. Brian, okay, let's get to our content. We got to start with the trades that happened last week. And here was the big one. And it was funny because in our patron-only Facebook group, we saw some rumors going about about maybe Montreal and Tampa might be swapping Druin for Alex Galchenyuk. And I remember thinking, wow, that is kind of a weird trade, but it is two players that their team seem to hate for whatever reason. And I was even thinking though, oh, come on, all these rumors, like who knows, they never seem to come true. And then like a day later, we did see that Tampa Bay did trade Jonathan Druin to the Canadians, but not for Galchenyuk, but for Mikhail Sergachev, who, if you remember last year going into the season, we were talking about all of the prospects for the season. And I recall a lot of our patrons were mad at us because they were like, why didn't you talk about Sergachev? He's going to be so, so amazing. These were, of course, Habs fans. And Sergachev, he he had a cup of coffee, four games in the NHL before getting sent down. We never heard about him again. But, of course, people into prospects obviously had him on their radar because he's clearly a big name and clearly a very big name because he's just been traded for Jonathan Druin, who just last year proved himself to be a bona fide star in the league. So let's break this deal down. 
fantasy wise. Let's see if this is good for Jonathan Drew and owners, if this raises his fantasy stock and also we'll look into Sergachev. So, okay, I guess before we dig into the fantasy implications really quickly, Brian, do you have any quick takes on whether or not this was a good or bad trade for either team? It seems like Montreal loses defense, which they probably need more than a winger. Everyone talks about how Montreal needs a center. If anything, they get Drew in. Maybe I've been hearing rumblings that he could switch to center. I don't know, but maybe it's worth it regardless, just because they're getting a stud like Jonathan Drew. And they also signed him to a six-year contract. So they're going to have him long-term. Tampa could probably afford to lose Druin for defense, especially if Stamkos can come back and stay healthy. You know, they already were pretty good offensively and now they're getting Stamkos back and obviously a really good prospect defenseman. Those are hard to find. What do you think? Do you think it's like a win-win situation? It seems like a pretty fair deal. You have Druin, an emerging player, or maybe emerge with huge upside being dealt for a blue chip prospect at another position, which does a couple things for Tampa. For one, it gives them a sorely needed defenseman in their pipeline because there really isn't much coming up there. And this is a great asset for them to have. And another key part of it is that it's a cost controlled asset. They're in a tight cap situation with what they're going to have to do over the next year or two to manage their cap and keep a competitive team. Having Sergachev there instead of Druin uh, serves that purpose, serves the purpose of them being able to to handle their cap situation a little bit more easily. Meanwhile, Montreal loses a badly needed defensive prospect, but as was clear from the Subban for Weber deal last year, they're not looking all that far ahead. They want to win right now, and that's something that Jonathan Drouin helps them more with than Mikhail Sergeyev would. Yeah, okay. So we'll see. Obviously, that doesn't have much of a fancy impact whether or not it was a good trade for Montreal or Tampa. Unless, I guess, you know, maybe you could think for next year it's worse for Carey Price or better. I don't know. You lose a defenseman, maybe have a better chance to win. Who knows? We'll see. Let's get into the actual players being traded and what this does for their fantasy value. So obviously, we first look at Druin, his fantasy stock. How many points should we project him for for next season now? I guess I was already kind of interested to see what you thought his fantasy projection should be before the trade, right? Like last year. Okay, actually, okay. Let's go way back. He played 70 games in his rookie season scored a modest 32 points no big deal whatever it was his rookie season then 2015-16 that was the controversial year he got sent to the minors for most of the season he came back before the playoffs but then racked up 14 points in 17 playoff games really broke out really showed that he was a star and shouldn't have been sent down probably but whatever then last year he played the full season except for a couple of injuries he ended the year with 53 points in 73 games which is a 60 point pace for a 22 year old that is very very good if he had stayed in Tampa, would you have seen that point total as sustainable? Was that 60 points something that you think he could have done? I mean, a 60-point pace, of course. or did, And I would have thought maybe, probably yes. Like, that seems like a decent floor for an up-and-coming star like Drew. And maybe there was even upside for more. So that's my first question to you, Brian. And then as a hab, do we know enough yet to come up with a projection in terms of do we think he could do better or worse than he would have as a member of the Tampa Bay Lightning? On one hand, you would think maybe he has a better chance of getting on the top power play and getting top minutes especially because you know in Tampa for whatever reason they really didn't like him on the other hand everyone says Montreal doesn't have a good center so he's not potentially going to have someone really good to pass him the puck unless he could play center himself and then also we have Pacioretty who plays the same position so I don't know if maybe he could take his spot on the first line and Jordan will again be like a second line guy maybe a second power play guy so what do you think Brian was first of all that 60 point pace that he put up last year was that sustainable and then do you think he will do better or worse than he would have done if he had stayed with Tampa Bay I'm going to answer those questions in reverse order starting with saying the obvious which is that Drew and Stuck was going to rise regardless of where he played for next year he's another year older another year more experienced and he's obviously 
headed in a positive direction, having shown steady improvement in his offensive numbers over his first three seasons in the league? Is his stock significantly higher in Montreal than it would have been in Tampa? Well, let me put it this way. We don't have to worry in Montreal what the impact of Stamkos returning to the lineup would be on Duran's number. That was the concern after this year is Duran got prime power play opportunity that he wasn't necessarily guaranteed with Stamkos returning to the lineup. But now you can expect him to have that power play opportunity regardless and then some perhaps to match his 26 power play points that he was able to get last season. It's almost like what we saw last summer again with Shea Weber going to Montreal. He had internal competition in Nashville over those prime offensive minutes uh, between guys like Roman Yosi and Matthias Ekholm and Ryan Ellis. And then in Montreal, he went there. He was the guy. There was none of that competition. Jiren does not have power play competition anymore the way he did in Tampa. He seems certain to play a big role on the Haps power play and to be well entrenched in their top six. It's not a very deep top six, not like in Tampa. So like I, I see any danger of him falling out of the top six and into the top nine, pretty much squashed to zero. I expect him to continue to establish himself this year as a playmaker, which it seems as though the Habs need and hope that the Habs do what it takes to play him with top end finishers. Like, Hey, maybe a guy named Alex Radulov or Alex Galchenyuk. Of course, there's there's plenty up in the air with Montreal's roster right now. So we'll have to let the dust settle before really getting specific about projecting him. You know, I've seen suggestions uh, that he plays center as the Habs are pretty thin there right now. And they've got their wingers and they're even thinner if they do let go of Galchenyuk. But for now, I'm going on the assumption that he plays wing and picks up 60 points with a large chunk coming in the form of even strength and power play assists. Okay, so that is basically you're saying he'll do similar to what he did last year. If you're saying 60 points, he had exactly a 60-point pace last year. We'll see. Like you said, there's so much we don't know. We don't know if Galchenyuk will be on the team. We don't know if Radulov will be on the team. He's an unrestricted free agent. He's been having talks. So who knows? Maybe they'll sign someone else. So we'll keep our eye on the situation in Montreal and probably update. If something happens, we could discuss how that affects the different players on the team. Let's go quickly to Tampa. So they get Sergachev. So here's what I know about this guy. He was a ninth overall pick in the 2016 draft. So that's very recent. He's only 18 years old. Like I said, he played four games last season before getting sent down. Didn't get a point. But then he put up 43 points in 50 games for the Windsor Spitfires, which is pretty amazing, especially for a defenseman. Even for a forward, that would be really good. So I guess the big question, obviously, we don't know too much about prospects in terms of long-term value versus other prospects. And maybe next week when Cameron comes on the show, I could uh, make a note here to ask him about Sergachev specifically. But let's just look at next season. Do we expect him to break Tampa's lineup If you recall, like I said, there were definitely patrons of Keeping Carlson who thought that he would be able to break Montreal's lineup last season, but now he's one year older. And, you know, Tampa isn't super deep when it comes to defensemen, right? Like behind Victor Hedman, we see guys like uh, Anton Strahlman getting second power play unit time. Uh, Some people even suggested that with Stamkos coming back, maybe Strahlman will get back on the top power play because he and Stamkos are better fit together than Stamkos and Hedman. But anyways, forgetting all that, like just it looks like there could be a spot for Sergachev. Of course, the other question is, could it be a meaningful spot fantasy-wise? Do we think that he can make an impact next year? Is he the type of guy that you might want to draft late in your one-year leagues to see if maybe he could pull a hashtag Team Wierenski? I'm going to go with no at this point. He could see opportunity this upcoming season in Tampa. I think it's a little soon to say, a little soon to get too excited about the possibility. There is that stipulation in the trade that Montreal sends Tampa a draft pick if he plays fewer than 40 games this season for the team. 
So you wonder if Tampa has some weird incentive to play him fewer than 40 games, although I imagine they'll do what's best for their team. You can see looking at their blue line, uh, their four or five defenseman spots pretty much spoken for on Tampa's blue line. Maybe he can slide in. It's going to depend on his training camp. Uh, the only thing is that like, if he does make the lineup, he suddenly becomes potentially the second best power play option that the Lightning have behind Victor Hedman. So it's like... He's either going to miss the roster or he could anchor the second power play unit and perhaps see time on the first. There's a big difference between those two possibilities, which is why we're going to have to wait a little longer to see just how things are going to shake out. Yeah, maybe just a guy to keep on your radar if you're finding out that he's going to make the team out of training camp. Maybe a guy to take a flyer on because, you know, like you said, behind Anton Strollman and Victor Hedman, you've got like Jason Garrison and Braden Coburn. And like last year, we saw Drake Dotchin getting power play time. So if he could do it, maybe Sergachev can. Of course, he'll be like 19 years old. So I wouldn't bet the moon on him for next year. Sky's the limit. For the future, of course. Uh, also, really quickly, uh, Bolio, the Habs, it's kind of weird, right? Montreal trades Sergachev, and then they, like, you think, okay, now they definitely need defensemen. So then they go and trade another defenseman? They trade Nathan Bolio to Buffalo? Bolio. For... Sorry, Brian. Bolio. They traded him to Buffalo for a third-round pick. I know we've had this conversation before, which means he was at least somewhat fantasy-relevant at some point last season. I remember he was getting some power play time, and he went on a bit of a run. Now he goes to Buffalo. Really quickly, any fantasy relevance here? Like, is Bolu a guy who could make an impact on the Sabres? He did get power play time in Montreal. Buffalo, you know, when you think of Buffalo defensemen who are relevant in fantasy, I know for you, you think of Cody Franzen, but for most people, they only think of Rasmus Ristolainen and nobody else. So it seems like maybe Bolu has a chance to maybe get some second unit power play time. Do you see him at all being worth considering drafting next year in fantasy? No, I don't. He does not have a very strong shot, and he's just not really offensively minded either. I don't see him really registering on anyone's fantasy radars. He did have that, like, what was it, Elon, like one, two-week run where we were talking about him on the show. However, it did not go beyond that, and it should not go beyond that next year in Buffalo. Okay, well, remember he's there. Who knows? Uh, maybe he could be like second or third in the Wait, depth chart. Hang on. I just said like definitively no. You can just forget this guy and you say, oh, but you never know. Who knows? Maybe we'll see where he slots in. I just I gave you my answer. That's your opinion. I feel like Buffalo is very shallow. Like, who else is a power play defenseman on Buffalo to you aside from Razzle Sushalainen? I think Zach Bogosian sees opportunity or a role before. Bulio. Bolio. Bolios. Yeah, I even just forgot his name before Bolio does. So, uh, and I don't know, Kulikov? I'm not sure. And maybe <laughs> Bogosian gets picked off by Vegas in the expansion draft. Who knows? We'll see when, when things come around. But if he's in that role, that means Buffalo is in bad shape. Ah. Harsh. Okay. Let's go to the other big trade that happened last week. This one, definitely, we saw people getting turned up on Twitter when it was announced that Arizona had traded Mike Smith to Calgary for Chad Johnson, Brandon Hickey, and a conditional third pick. It was the Calgary fans that were obviously upset. They were going like, Mike Smith? He's so old. He's not even that good. Why did we trade for him? But okay, they did. We could probably get into a whole thing and maybe we'll a little bit about whether or not this was a good trade for the Calgary Flames. Regardless, this is fantasy hockey. And now all of a sudden you have Mike Smith, who is, I would say, an okay goalie. Like, 
you know, last year, by the way, he had like a 914 save percentage year before he had 916. And this is on a really not great Arizona team. So maybe I'm already getting deeper into the analysis already. But just to say, like, it's not as if he's been horrible, horrible compared to some other goalies who we talked about throughout the season. You know, he wasn't like Varlamov. I don't know. I'm just taking a name out of my hat. Anyways, all of a sudden now Mike Smith goes from the Arizona Coyotes, who were one of the worst teams in the league, to the Calgary Flames, who were a really good team. They made the playoffs. They have a lot of defensemen that are good. And they also have some strong forwards. And it seemed like last year one of their biggest obstacles was they couldn't get decent goaltending now they've traded for a goaltender we'll see how well he does but i do think it seems like mike smith could be a decent guy or at least he's worth more than he would have been before this trade in terms of your fantasy leagues but okay also it's a weird trade in terms of arizona i don't know why they did it well i guess they probably did it just because they want to dump salary and and whatever what arizona always does like chad johnson is an unrestricted free agent come july 1st unless they're going to work something out with him and sign him i guess that means that Louis Demang becomes the starter in Arizona. Of course, there was also this thing, like it was in the protection list that just came out where the teams were all deciding which players would be made available to Vegas. They protected Chad Johnson, even though he's going to become a UFA, and left Demang unprotected, which I think is weird, but I doubt that Vegas is going to take Demang since they have lots of good goalies available. Maybe we'll get to that a little bit later in the show. Man, so what should I ask you, Brian? Okay, I just feel like I want to know, do you think Mike Smith can be a decent goalie in fantasy next year now that he's on a better team in the Calgary Flames. I'm sure Brian Elliott wouldn't say so, but what does Brian Com think? Huh, good one. Two guys named Brian. Uh, Mike Smith in Arizona, yeah. Like you mentioned, he played for the Coyotes, which is not a good thing to be doing if you're a goalie. And he has certainly contended with a lot as their number one goalie for the last several years. They've been brutal at suppressing shots while he's been there. And Smith has subsequently faced more shots from high danger areas than most goalies have around the league. Uh, While he's had his moments in this role, though, I can't say I feel terribly confident that he can put up a league average save percentage in Calgary. And here's why. Over the last three years, Mike Smith ranks 25th out of 32 regular starters in the NHL in even strength save percentage, and he ranks similarly poorly in all situations save percentage, 38th out of 46 regular goalies over the last three years with a 9-11 save percentage. You did mention his last two years were strong, quote-unquote, and you made a point to mention it several times over the course of the season. Now Mike Smith is doing well. If that's doing well for Mike Smith, keep in mind, that's still a point below league average save percentage, and he's getting older. My thinking is that whatever numbers he has been putting up, they're not about to get any better as he heads into his age 35 season. And keep in mind that for much of last year, Calgary was not a good team to be a goaltender for. So now he's with a team that has struggled defensively and is in a similar setup where their decor is not awfully strong. They're good at generating offense for sure, Uh, but Calgary was not a good team to be goaltending for, like I said. Uh, Do I think Smith can fare better than Brian Elliott did in that position? I don't. And, like, let's also grant that after the kinks were ironed out from the first little bit of the year, Elliott did have some good games, and Chad Johnson had a great run. And it's nice that the Calgary front office has high hopes and expectations for Mike Smith to think he can do the same thing. But I honestly think they'd have been better off sticking with Elliott or heck, just as well with Johnson on a friendlier contract than Smith's four and a quarter million for two more years. My other thought is like, would Vegas have offered the Flames one of the unprotected goalies that they could draft for a similar price in picks that the Flames spent to get Mike Smith? Obviously, I'm trying to find all these different scenarios where the Flames could have done something better because I don't love 
what they did. For Mike Smith personally, being in Calgary is likely better than being Arizona with the opportunity for a few more wins and a few fewer goals against. But again, after having been just below league average save percentage last year, I don't necessarily expect him to have a better year in that category in 2017-18. I've definitely seen most people saying this is a crazy move for Calgary. Smith is old. He's not that good. I'll, you know, I don't know. For some reason, I just got this feeling that I think he's he's okay, right? Like I just the fact that he was able to put up decent numbers on Arizona. I remember feeling like, oh man, you definitely don't want Mike Smith. Like he's probably going to get blown up. And then he had like. He would sometimes have some really good games. I know he's old. Like, I know what you're saying. I have a feeling, I don't know. I just have a feeling he's going to surprise people and have a decent year next year. I think this is a case of you having low expectations for him and him having exceeded them. Like the bar was low. Yeah. So yeah, 914, 916 in Arizona. Great. But those aren't good numbers. Like I've said it like three times. It's not even league average. And it's not like he is staying the same chronologically. He's aging. He's going to be 35 years old for the majority of this season. I just, and it's not like, you know, you can look and say, well, Craig Anderson had a fantastic season in Ottawa behind uh, and at times iffy defense, but he had a low mileage season. He didn't play a whole lot this year. And compared to Mike Smith's career numbers, he's played fewer games on the whole. So not only is Mike Smith 35 years old, but there's plenty of mileage on that body too. Yeah, I hear you. Calgary's definitely going to need to get a backup to not make Mike Smith play like 70 games next year if they expect to do well and make the playoffs and go far. But I think in the right situation, it could go well. Like, I'm not saying he's going to be amazing. I think like probably I could see him putting up another 916 save percentage season and picking up like 30 to 40 wins. Like, I, like you know, not, not blowing people away, but I think someone you shouldn't ignore in fantasy is 30 to 40 wins crazy. I, don't, I never really think about how many wins is normal for a goalie. How many wins did Calgary have overall last year? You're shaking your head at me like I'm such a dummy. Well, no, you're saying like it's easy. And in the same breath, you said, well, you don't expect him to play 70 games to get 40 wins. He's going to have to play significant number one minutes. Uh, last year, Calgary had 45 wins. So oh. you would want him in net for 40 of those. Okay, maybe closer to 30. I said 30 to 40. Let's say 30 to 35. Okay. All right, so Brian, how would you rank the three goalies who have so far moved teams in the offseason? We've had Bishop go to Dallas. We've had Scott Darling go to Carolina. And now we have Mike Smith going to Calgary. Just in terms of next season, when you do your Schmorgoliesborg extravaganza in August, like late August or early September, and we're deciding which goalies we would draft higher than the others, how would you rank these three for next year? Okay, well, in Smorgulli's board, I tier. So I, I'm not going to tier them now. I'm just going to rank them the way I, I would want them. And I would have Bishop first, then Darling, and then Smith. And I think Darling could actually compete with Bishop and be right up there. They'll probably be in similar tiers if the Canes can take steps to support their goaltender. And perhaps they're already on their way to doing so. Uh, they just hired former PEI Senator and Ottawa Senator Mike Bales away from Pittsburgh to be their goaltending coach, which is certainly an intriguing development in Carolina to address a weakness that has plagued them for years upon years. But you also would have argued with me at several points, especially last season, that Cam Ward is a perfectly fine goaltender. I would not have. Go back and listen. I just said he was on good runs. He was capable of winning some games. But he also, you were always at risk of him blowing up your stats if you played him. And that's exactly what happened. Eddie Lack, yeah, you then you would say they should play Eddie Lack every game. And we saw how that worked. You know, he was actually kind of good at the end of the year. It'll be interesting to see if Eddie Lack has yeah. a job in the NHL next season. And if they supported him with a goaltending coach who had won a couple Stanley Cups, perhaps things could have gotten even better. It's just nice to see that they are investing in the position in a way they haven't in years past. 
Yeah. And we have Brendan here in the chat room saying like Mike Smith, he was good for me in stretches last year, but I never felt comfortable with him. Yeah. That's the kind of thing with goalies like this older goalies with average save percentages on not great teams. It's like, sometimes they can do really well for you. And especially if you need saves, someone like Mike Smith on Calgary probably should be good for a lot of saves, but yeah, you never know for sure if you could rely on him. Hopefully Bishop and Darling will be guys you could somewhat rely on. Bishop was definitely never someone that you could rely on last year. He also blew up a lot. Scott Darling's the only one who actually did pretty well. But, of course, he played very few games. It's only the backup on Chicago. Also, Brendan's saying that sounds like Chad Johnson is expected to potentially re-sign with Calgary as backup after expansion. So I think that would be good for him. Well, hang on. Before before we start... Yeah, yeah. before we start quoting, like, uh, maybe, Brendan, you can drop a source for us in the chat. You did just drop a source for news that has just come out saying the Knights are going to... They have a deal in place to select Kerry Lettinen from the Dallas Stars which uh, I guess is okay because there really wasn't anyone else worthwhile unless you're an Edmonton beat writer and you're just drooling over Cody Egan. Uh, But uh, I remember when I was doing my mock drafts after the protected lists were out, Dallas was a bit of a wasteland. I I was taking Dan Hamhues with my pick, so maybe this is better than Dan Hamhues for them. Brendan is going to find the Chad Johnson source. But for the record, that's an unsourced rumor. Uh uh, But I do trust Brendan to quote the Swedish source. All right, yeah. Hey, got to give credit to people who join us live. You join us live, keepingcarlson.com slash live for our shows. We'll mention you in all of your great comments in the chat room. By the way, Brian, if Dallas and Vegas made a deal for Vegas to take Kari Lettinen, it's not because it's like a good option for Vegas. It's because Dallas is giving them something good to take Kari Lettinen and his contract off of their hands. For sure, I think. I don't I don't think that I would have yeah, much faith. No, there's zero doubt about it with the goalies available. There has to be something in this for Vegas. I guess they're going to have some extra cap room to spare. They're doing Dallas a huge favor here. Like Dallas is completely messed up in their goalie and cap situation. So I'm very curious to see what the price will be that Dallas pays to have the, have this favor taken care of. Yeah, I'm assuming either a good prospect or a draft pick, something like that. Okay, so since we're on goalies and we're still talking about this, uh, Mike Smith, I don't know why you just laughed at me. I thought it was a very good transition. But okay, what do we make of now the Arizona goalie situation? We keep talking about Arizona. I, just last episode, we were talking about, oh, they have all of these really good prospects and, and young players who we all think have a good chance to break out. And they could potentially be a good team at least sometime, maybe next year. Now, though, like, what do we think about their goalie situation? Like, we still don't know what's going to happen with Chad Johnson. We still don't know if Louis Demang is going to be the starter. If, let's say, Louis Demang was the starter next year for Arizona, which I don't know if that's a reasonable thing. Maybe Arizona has plans to get someone else. But if he was the starter, would you draft him? Like, is he someone who you think could carry a team and do okay? He's a 9-10 goalie overall in his career after 77 games. But perhaps Arizona will improve and that will help him. And, you know, he's young and still learning and growing. Is there any reason to believe that Louis Demain could be at least a league average goalie next year? Like, can he put up Mike Smith numbers? Is it possible? Maybe. Is it likely? I would bet against it. I think Arizona is in a really awful situation at the moment. It seems like they just have the only option. Uh, their only option right now is to tank, and that's it. I don't have any faith in Louis Domingue as a starting goalie, especially in Arizona. Uh, it's looking like a real fantasy desert in the uh, crease. Brian. And I, I know that was really, really bad. No, but they don't have uh, to tank. They could get a goalie. There's lots of goalies like available. Uh, perhaps for they can get a goalie. Tank. But but speaking of the goalie they have in Louis Domingue, uh, and honestly, I don't know why they would get a goalie. They're much more than a goalie away from competing. Uh, like To me, they look like 
Colorado did last year. Like that's the potential season I see having. So even if you have their starting goalie, you're rarely going to get good numbers and you're even more rarely going to get wins. There was a rumor that I read, speaking of unsourced rumors, this will be a really boring one because I can't remember what player it was, but there was some like good offensive player that I heard rumored going to Arizona. So maybe they could be good if they could get like a good player. I just rolled my eyes on behalf of everyone listening. Good uh, good comment. Okay, if I I remember it later on, I'll I'll let you know. Brandon, by the way, he sourced the Chad Johnson rumor back to John Shannon at Sportsnet. So uh, could be be reliable. Cool. I just can't think about it now because I have to run a podcast. Maybe next time you're talking, I'll remember who it was that I saw rumored to be going to Arizona. Okay, so Brian, we had all this news just this morning. All of the teams released there, or the NHL released the protected lists, which players did that all the teams in the NHL decide they're not going to let Vegas take, and thus, you know, they released which players were unprotected and who could potentially go to Vegas. I feel like there's not too much we can say, like, fantasy-wise, because we don't know which players will actually go to Vegas. There were, like, obviously some very interesting picks here. Like, you know, we had Sammy Vatnin being left unprotected, which seems crazy. Like, why would Anaheim ever let Sammy Vatnin go for free when he's been their, like, top power play defenseman for a while? I guess last year, Cam Fowler took that job for a lot of the year. I assume it's one of these situations, and that's happened a lot, like we've been seeing, that there's been teams making deals where it's like, okay, we'll send you this draft pick in exchange, like Columbus did this, right? They sent a first-round draft pick to Vegas in exchange for them not taking one of a handful of guys they want Vegas to take, like a specific player. I wonder, Brian, by the way, are these uh, binding deals, these sort of back-channel, we'll give you this guy, and in exchange, you have to promise not to take this guy? What happens if Vegas ends up totally going rogue and taking the guy they promised not to take? Do they have to give the draft pick back is this because i if you recall on survivor one season there was a guy who won the car immunity challenge and then he gave away his car in exchange for getting immunity later on and then the guy took the car and then didn't fulfill the deal they let it go i don't know the survivor and nhl do they have similar rules in this respect i'm going to guess that these deals only ever happen if like i i feel like the trading of a pick or a prospect to vegas is conditional on Vegas making the correct choice to, to to initiate the deal. I imagine every GM has covered their butt that way. Whether Vegas can tell them we're going to do it and then change their mind at the last minute, I'm not sure. But I, I, I would hope that any NHL GM who's making a deal with the team makes sure that they have to hold up their end of the bargain for it to okay. actually go through. Yeah, I just really wanted to make the Dreams Yao Man yeah. Survivor reference yeah, yeah. in a summer yeah. episode of Keeping Carlson. It's my only chance. It's our episodes <laughs> with the fewest number of listeners. So that's where I can try out my Survivor analogies. Okay, but there are okay, some other interesting players that we haven't heard rumors about potentially having deals in place for. Like uh, Florida was really interesting to see like Marcia So and Riley Smith both made available to like top six guys of Florida, like basically had a top nine for most of the year. Peter Morazic being unprotected was really surprising right why did detroit protect jimmy howard it it makes no sense like why would vegas take this goalie that's old and injury prone and make so much money obviously they wouldn't have taken jimmy howard and now uh detroit leaves peter mrazic who like didn't have a great season but going into last season he was like one of the top goalie prospects it seemed yeah for sure i would be very excited for the opportunity to add peter mrazic to my expansion team or just to my team, if I've got a solid starter or like a 1A guy that I feel like I can trust for the most part and have Peter Morazic sort of waiting in the wings, ready to be developed a little bit to take on a starting role before long, I'm calling Vegas and asking, what's it going to take to get you to take 
Mrazek, it shouldn't take much because I feel like even Vegas doesn't want Mrazek, but they have to, there's nobody else worth taking from the Red Wings. So it's like by default, they'll take Peter Mrazek and then figure out what the best thing to do with him will be. The real head scratcher for me today was that the Isles exposed uh, Ryan Strom, Brock Nelson, Calvin DeHaan, and Josh Bailey, but they had a deal in place with Vegas that Vegas wouldn't take Josh Bailey who is the oldest and most expensive of that group, or Casey Sezikis, who they also left unprotected, who was signed at a contract that's way too expensive for what he does as a fourth-line role player. I think he's got embarrassing pictures of the owner, the way Casey Sezikis has been treated in Long Island. That's uh, that's the real head-scratcher for me. Mrazek, definitely I would have protected him over Howard, but it's weird that the Islanders, like I thought, oh, okay, they must have deals in place that Strom, Nelson, Bailey are all safe. And maybe even Dahan, but uh, no, it sounds like they really just want to keep the wrong guys, like objectively the wrong guys. Well, Josh Bailey is, is okay, but yeah, Casey Zizekas, that's weird. And yeah, Ryan Strom's another one of these guys that's like, you know, we've thought of him as a really good prospect for a while, but maybe they just don't think he's going to pan out. I think that would be an interesting pick for Vegas. Yeah, Maraz. So you were saying though, you don't think Vegas wants Morazic? Like, why, why wouldn't they want him even to trade him to Arizona? Like Brendan was saying, maybe there's a rumor that, you know, Vegas could take Morazic and some of these other goalies, send them to the teams that need goalies. Like, that's a pretty good guy that you might want to bank on one bad season. But before that, he was really great. You know I've stood up for Peter Morezek for the last few years and have definitely said he's the guy Detroit should be wanting in their net over Jimmy Howard, and that has not changed. I like Peter Morezek. He can be a number one goalie in the NHL. He's available for nothing. Yeah. Hey, and uh, Brandon's posting here. That's so useful to have you here, Brandon. Uh, so Ansar Khan, the Detroit beat writer, apparently tweeted that uh, the Red Wings said that they left Morazic unprotected because they think he's overconfident and cocky and they like uh, like whoa if that's if that's true that they're saying that about him like wow what happens if he doesn't get picked and then he has to come back to that team maybe it looks like he's going to be going somewhere regardless if that's happening I'm a big fan of Vance Arcan as the beat writer but he is definitely carrying someone in management's water with that one after Ken Holland uh, just got ripped apart today by Red Wings fans and just NHL fans alike. Uh, That's a classic excuse to cover up for a GM's mistake or just inability to properly assess talent. Uh, This guy was bad in the room. Like now that he's on his way out, by the way, he was really cocky and nobody liked him. Right. So, okay. A couple other goalies I think are interesting. And we'll move on. We won't spend too much time with this. I know you have some really good stuff prepared, Brian, for our players who had surprising seasons. But I wanted to mention like Calvin Pickard and Michael Neuwirth, both goalies that have been good for stretches and both available. So I wonder if they are guys that maybe can go to Vegas. And then also uh, some like potential good scores like James Neal might be available to them. Obviously, we don't know because we don't know any of these back-channel deals and who's actually, you know, like Bobby Ryan in Ottawa, Michael Grabner on the Rangers. Also, like Minnesota left a couple of really good guys. One of them we actually have planned to talk about today. Eric Stahl had this amazingly great season, a surprisingly great season, and we're going to talk about whether we think he could repeat it, but maybe we'll have to talk about whether he would be able to repeat it on Vegas because he's going to be available as well, as well as Matt Dumba on Minnesota. So, okay, lots of interesting stuff. We'll have our episode next week with Cameron Robinson and we'll talk through any interesting, there's so much interesting, right? Like, I don't know how we're going to even do an episode and talk about the draft and the Vegas expansion. There's like so much. 
But also, I guess, become a patron to Keeping Carlson, keepingcarlson.com slash patron. I'm sure we'll be talking about it all throughout the week in our patron-only Facebook group. Things have gotten really exciting there recently with all the news coming out. Brian, do you want to move on? Do you have anything else to say about these expansion protection lists? I'm ready to move on. Okay, so I think that you probably don't want to spend too much time on this next thing I had listed. There were a couple of coaching changes over these past couple of weeks. Buffalo hired Phil Housley and Florida hired Bob Bugner. Bowner. Bugner. Bugner, yeah, because he was like in NHL 94 as a player, right? Like he's, he's a former player. Yeah, that and was... like at least like through NHL 99. Oh, okay. Anyways, uh, sometimes when a team hires a coach, we have fantasy impacts that we can take from that in terms of like, oh, this coach is more offensive or this coach is going to be better for the goalie because he likes to play a defensive system. Like, do you see anything from either of these hirings that makes you change your opinions of the fantasy values of players on Buffalo or Florida? No. It doesn't. And I think the more interesting part of this whole conversation is that Bob Bugner, I was way off. He played all the way till the end of 2006. How about that? Finished his career with Colorado. Good for you him. Know, another fun fact, I actually have a Phil Housley jersey because I once bought a pack of hockey cards back in the 90s. And it was like these like all-star cards. And there was an insert in it, like a rare card that said like you won an uh, actual game worn like official jersey. And it's a Phil Housley all-star jersey. I wonder if I have it here. Oh, I should have actually brought that out before. This would have been a good time to show off. Maybe in a future episode, another reason to join us live, keepingcarlson.com slash live for our recordings. I'm going to wear my Phil Housley all-star jersey at some point to represent the Buffalo Sabres. Okay, Brian. Let's get into our main event for the episode. I don't know if this is the main event or if this is like the side thing, but we have a tradition in our summer series of bringing up some players that, first of all, had really disappointing seasons and whether we think they'll be able to bounce back. That's what we did in the last episode, so definitely check that out. And then today, I want to talk about some players who blew our expectations out of the water, did much better than most people were projecting, and now we want to look into whether we think that this is the new normal, whether these new production amounts are sustainable, or whether they will be just, you know, a a blip on the radar and They'll go back to what we expected next year. So let's get started. I want to start in Boston, right at the top of the scoring list for the NHL. I want to talk about David Pasternak. We all knew he was going to be good, but I don't think anyone expected 34 goals and 70 points in 75 games last year. That's a 77-point pace for David Pasternak. In his two previous seasons, he only played 46 and 51 games and pretty much put up a half point per game pace through both of them. Obviously, we thought, yeah, he should probably be able to do better, maybe a 50 points maybe 60 points if things go really well. But obviously, it really helped that he got consistent ice time with Marchand and Bergeron for most of the season. And he also got consistent top unit power play time, and he took advantage. And then some, like I said, almost a point-per-game pace for David Pasternak and 34 goals. I don't see any reason for Boston not to put him in the same situation again, you know, on the top line and top power play. So does that mean that we should expect another 75-plus point pace for David Pasternak? Or do you see any potential reasons to expect his production to decrease next season? Well, first off, you're bang on about why this was such a great year for Pasternak. For starters, he graduated to the Bruins' top line this season, playing the most with Marchand and Bergeron. And he also got first unit power play time for the first time in his career and made a very constant and compelling case to stay there all season long, picking up 10 goals and 14 assists for 24 points with the man advantage. He also did improve his individual numbers. Surely these situations helped, but we saw a dominant 20-year-old playing more than 51 games for the first time in his three-year career and doing it in style. And given his age at 20 years old, it was a super impressive season. That might actually still be an understatement. If you look back at the last 
several years, you're only going to find two players who managed near 75-point pace in their age 20 seasons, and those players' names are Connor McDavid and Jack Eichel. If you're thinking, okay, well, that's just recently. If you look further back, more people did it. That's not true. If you go back 12 years, you can only add six more names to the list of near 75-point pace players who did that at the age of 20 or younger. Steven Stamkos did it back in 2010, 2011. And Ooh, I want to play. I wanna play. Can I guess? Okay, yeah. Yeah, okay. So going backwards from there. He was the most recent since Pasternak, McDavid, Eichel, then Stamkos, then... How about John Tavares? Is he there? Did he do it? He's not there. He never did it. He's no David Pasternak, I guess. Uh, yeah. Are Crosby and Ovechkin on your list? They sure are. That's two. There's three more names if you want to give it a go. Oh, boy. Okay, give me... All right. Uh, I don't, I'll bore people if I keep going. I'll bet you if I thought about it and thought through each team, I could come up with it. Maybe give me give me a team or something. Can you give me a clue? For the Pittsburgh. listeners, not for me. Pittsburgh. Malkin. L.A. Uh, Kopitar? Yeah. Oh, wow. He's fallen far if it took that long to, to consider. No, I was and just thinking... I was just kind of thinking with LA, like, like Kopitar's old. Like, I didn't know how far back we were going, but okay. And then you would say Boston? Yeah. Mm. Well, is it like Bergeron? It sure is. Ah! Pasternak's own line mate. Maybe Fun. that gave him the mentoring and guidance that he needed to get there. So not bad company at all to be in. Like, let's be clear. This is a, a unique and exclusive group. So even if you wanted to say, well, hey, you know, Pasternak had everything handed to him situationally this year. So of course he tore it up. There's a significant amount of skill in what Pasternak was able to do with this golden opportunity. And because of that, I think he can repeat as a 70 point player, given the same situation. But should he get bumped down to the second line at even strength, I'm still only going to knock like five points off of that because I think he's insanely talented. He's established his presence and scoring ability on the power play. So I think he's going to stay there. The personnel on that top unit in Boston also going to be remarkably similar in this upcoming season as it was in the last one. I'm very excited. I think this season might be informative to figure out where the ceiling could be for him. I mean, I've seen comparisons of his short career's trajectory made to how Kucherov's career proceeded. I don't know if I'm ready to go there just yet, but with similar deployment to last year, he certainly could equal and best last year's 75-point pace. Wow, Brian. You know, I was expecting in this episode that the majority of the players we'll talk about, you'll say, oh, it was too high, high shooting percentage, this and that. Like, don't expect them to repeat it again. That just seems to be, you know, the conservative way of looking at these huge surges. But I guess with a young guy like David Pasternak, you don't really know yet what his baseline is. And I guess you are clearly saying that this was it, 75 points. So that's huge. That means people should potentially be looking at him to be drafted in their like first or at the latest, like second rounds of their drafts. So don't forget about David Pasternak. Brian, clearly you got his stamp of approval. Well, he's got my stamp of approval, just for the record. And, and he's the one who should be concerned about that rather than the other way around. Uh, and, and also to be clear, I said 70 points is what you can reliably expect from him this season. That's where I'm going to peg him. And I said, take a little bit off if he does end up playing with oh. Krejci on the second line, if the Bruins want to mix and match a little bit. But uh, yeah, that ceiling is definitely unknown. And I, I think 75 in the same situation is a real possibility, if not more. Oh, so in that case, it sounds like you're probably not going to be drafting him. because I'm sure there's going to be someone in the couple tier one division that you're going to be competing against that's going to see him as a 75 point guy. So if you see, uh, see him as a know. 70 point guy, I don't think you'll get him. I don't. I, yeah. And that's what I'm, I'm curious to know where other people will have him valued. Like 75, I, I think is his upside for sure. Maybe a couple more than that. 
I would prefer to draft him around the 70 point range, but uh, yeah, I'm interested if anybody is convinced enough from that one season and confident enough. I mean, not that I'm saying there's a lot of reasons to be confident. I just went through all of them, but to bank on 75 points when, you know, there might be some other more established 75 point players who've done it more frequently. I could see them obviously going before Pasternak. I, I don't think I'll be too far behind on him. I'm not, I'm not sure I have him much lower than anyone else would have. Okay, so yeah, it'll be fun to see. It's also Brad Marchand, who I don't have pegged to talk about today, but he also, you know, had a big surge. He had a, a really good season that season before. Would you take Marchand over Pasternak in most leagues? Marchand had even more goals. Yeah, that's a tough one because both have the potential to be big shooters as well. Huh. Gonna have to think about that. I'm gonna have them reasonably even. Where do the patrons have them? Oh, you mean in our patron rankings? Let me take a look. Yeah, every single week. No, what am I saying? Every single day <laughs> on our Facebook-only patron group, we've got Dave posting the rankings and everyone votes on who they think should be ranked next. It's a lot of fun. And let me just find here. There wasn't a posting today. We were too busy talking about these protection lists, but I'm going to scroll and scroll and scroll and find... Ah, okay. Here's the last ranking. So the patrons had... Brad Marchand at number 23 and David Pasternak at 28. So they had Marchand a little bit higher and a lot of players uh, ahead of them. I don't know. There's a lot of good players in the NHL. You know, I feel like in the top two rounds, even top three rounds, you could get like a lot of good studs that could potentially all get you over 70 points. All right. Uh, here's another player that we expected to be great last year, but still blew at least my expectations out of the water. You'll tell me, Brian, if you are the same. Three seasons ago, Mark Shifley had 49 points in 82 games, which made him a fantasy-relevant player. 50 points, that's good enough for me, more than half point per game. Then two seasons ago, he put up 61 points in 71 games for a 70-point pace, which basically made him a star. A player who gets you 70 points, that's a guy that you draft pretty early Then last season, he even blew that out of the water and he gave his owners 82 points in 79 games. And he was one of only seven players in the whole league to break 80 points. So a huge, huge year for Mark Shifley. So are we looking at Shifley as a point per game guy now going forward? And Brian, I'm going to give you a gift. I'm going to give you my own analysis. I have a feeling I know where you're going to be going with this. So I'm going to take a crack at it if you don't mind. Okay, do it. So Shifley scored 32 goals last season, even though he only took 160 shots. And that is a 20% shooting percentage, which is much higher than his 14% average shooting percentage for his career. Of course, he's only played four seasons, so it's a pretty small sample size. Maybe he will end up closer to 20 than 14 when it's all said and done. But normally when you see a player with an especially high shooting percentage, you think maybe he won't be able to keep that up the following season. So maybe we have to take away a few goals, and a few goals could take him from 82 points down to maybe like 75 points, which is still amazing. But maybe he will be closer to 70 than to 80. Like I say, still great, but not top round of fantasy draft great. That said, his 160 shots last season were actually low for him. He had 194 shots the year before in eight fewer games. So maybe he can take more shots to make up for the likely reduction in his shooting percentage. And that could make him balance out and maybe still be able to get 80 points. So I guess at the end of the day, it's hard to say why he won't be able to get at least like 75. I have him for more points than David Pasternak, especially because one thing I'm not concerned about is he'll continue to have great line mates regardless of if he plays on the top line or the second line. I don't think he's going to play on the second line, but maybe the players around him will switch around. But like he's going to have line A, Wheeler, Ehlers, like probably two of these guys, at least one for sure. These guys aren't going anywhere and they're all awesome. So shifley has got great players around him. Then also on the power play, you've got Bufflin on defense and he's clearly like so talented. I'm going to say maybe... I would put him closer to like 75 than to 80, but I really like him. So I don't know if that actually helps. Do you think he's an 80-point guy moving forward? 
Yeah, for me, actually, it's, it's in, this is interesting. I'm going to, well, we'll see if my answer is unexpected or not relative to yours. I think this is a really easy one. What we've witnessed over the last three years is a not so incremental ascendance of one of the NHL's newest elite centermen. And I'm going to say it again just to make sure everybody hears Mark Scheifele is an elite NHL centerman. Over the last two years, Shifley has ranked third in the entire NHL in point generation per 60 minutes behind only a couple guys named Connor McDavid and Sidney Crosby. And there's actually some breathing room between him and the rest of the pack behind him for good measure. Shifley is a guy who I'm counting on to be a 70 plus point guy for the next several years. And I'm hoping for more. The biggest knock on his year last year, and you touched on it, Elon, was that he had an inflated shooting percentage. That's true. It was most inflated at even strength, where he scored on about 6% more of his shots than we'd have expected him to based on his career averages. But if you take him down to career average and knock off what would be about 10 goals, he's still above 70 points with room to spare. The one thing to consider with him that you also have, Elon, would be his shot totals. They took a significant dip last year, and I'm afraid to say I don't have the same optimism as you that those are going to come back to help replace any regression in shooting percentage. He was managing nearly 40% fewer shots on goal on a per 60-minute basis this past season, and this was a product of two things that changed for Shifley between last year and the one before it. The first thing was that he's now playing with Patrick Liney, who became the trigger man on the line. So who's taking the shots when Shifley and Liney are on the ice? It's going to be Liney. It was this year. It will be going forward. The other reason why Shifley's shot generation could have dropped uh, is that the Jets generally had more trouble moving the puck and putting shots towards the net as a team, which hopefully the Jets can remedy somewhat going into next year. I do expect that first thing, Liney being the trigger man, to continue, as I said, Uh, And so for those reasons, I still consider Shifley to be closer to 160 shots next year than to 194, but still two shots a game, 70 plus points is nothing to shake a stick at. And uh, for the record, I don't expect the shooting percentage to, to be a lasting thing either. So don't necessarily expect a higher shooting percentage the rest of his career. Like I know we have a small sample to draw upon since he's only been in the league a couple of years before this big season. And uh, like, I guess if you're looking, you could look at his heat maps that show he did take fewer shots, but they came from a more concentrated area in the slot this year. Uh, But even with that evidence, I'm not ready to bank on him continuing this high shooting percentage trend unless I see it happen again. But all in all, what you have in Mark Shifley is an elite center who drives play, is very careful about his zone entries. He leads his team in offensive zone entries with control and is playing with a top end finisher alongside him than Patrick Liney. And even if he's not, there's a pretty solid group of top six forwards all around. This means you can remain excited about Mark Shifley for next year. I have him at 75 points with potential for point per game. Yeah, that sounds good. So you have him above David Pasternak in terms of points, but maybe in terms of fantasy value, they end up pretty even just because Pasternak takes more shots and has that winger eligibility. But either way, you can't go wrong with either of these young guys. Next, let's go to Minnesota and talk about two players who have had 
opposite career trajectories, but met in the middle last year. I'm talking about Mikhail Granlin and Eric Stahl. So Granlin is someone who we've continually expected big things from, but has always disappointed after three seasons of looking like he was going to be nothing more than like a solid 45, 50 point guy. He broke out huge last year, ending up with 69 points in 81 games. Before that, he had never gotten more than 44 points. What an increase. 69 points for Mikhail Granlin. No one would have called that. I'm sure during the season at the start of his run when he was doing well, I, I can't imagine this didn't happen, Brian, that at some point I was like, Brian, Mikhail Granlin, he's doing so well. And then you were like, yeah, don't expect it to last. You know, he's never been able to keep it up before. But last year he clearly did. Then we have Eric Stahl, who has never disappointed. He's had an amazing career ever since he started, but he seemed to finally be slowing down coming into his age 32 season last year. So after seasons of 54 points and then a dismal 39 points two years ago, he signed with the Wild and then surged back into fantasy relevance, putting up 65 points in 82 games. So basically, Brian, I have the same question to you for both Stahl and Granlin. Which is the real Eric Stahl? Which is the real Mikhail Granlin for next year? The 65 plus point pace guys from last season or the more closer to 45 point pace guys from the season before? And then, of course, we have the added caveat that Eric Stahl was left unprotected. So we don't know for sure if he'll even be on Minnesota next year. But let's just assume for this answer that he will be. How nice, how luxurious is it for... You know, like you're looking at the wild. This is a team where we're used to seeing offense essentially capped at 60 points. What a luxury it is to have two fantastic seasons from Minnesota forwards. Grenland's 69 points this year actually tied him for the fourth highest scoring numbers by a Minnesota wild player ever and the highest total since Miko Koivu 71 back like seven years ago in 2009, 2010. And Stahl's 65 points weren't all that far behind. And you could sort of hope for this offensive boost, if not expect it with Boost Brujo arriving in the wild, seeming ready to have a deep top nine and making some systemic changes to create more offense. But beginning with Grandland, you look and wonder, well, why didn't this happen before? We've been waiting on him to deliver on this kind of potential for a while, regardless of the coach, regardless of the system. This was his fifth year in the NHL, which seems like it's been a long time to wait, but he is still young. He's just entering the heart of his prime as a 25-year-old in this upcoming season. Were his certain numbers a little high to make me think 69 points is too high of a watermark? Yes, they were. His individual shooting percentage, on-ice shooting percentage, they were both high. And he also saw a huge spike in his power play shooting percentage that alone likely got him a few bonus goals with the men advantage. So those are all likely to regress some, which I think will be enough to put 70 points certainly out of reach. But one thing that could go a long way in deciding whether he can repeat some measure of this year's big success will be what position Mikhail Granlin is asked to play. Having previously been a centerman for Jason Pominville and Zach Parisi, he played this year most frequently on the wing while Miko Koivu handled the centerman duties for his line. And it seems like that sort of worked, that different responsibility. And so from what I've got to go on, I feel like that could be the difference between a 50-55 point season for Mikhail Granlin at center and a 55-65 to point campaign on the wing. Now 55, actually, now that I say it out loud, seems criminally low. I feel like if he plays the wing, I'm ready to call him a 60-point player. 
I mean, it's not criminally low considering he had never had more, like I said, than what, 44 points before last year. So you're putting him at a floor of 55. I think that's fine. Like, I don't know. It was a huge jump for him. It's really hard for me after being one of the people who has been burned by him in the past to really expect something close to 60 plus points. But I guess you're saying if the situation is right, he can do it. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. Because like, you look at the past and he's never come close to this mark, even though he had the skill and the pedigree to do it. And you look at the numbers and you see there is some regression due. I'm just not sure how much, if I'm being needlessly harsh and penalizing him that much for the expected regression, like 15 points is a lot. That's not just those 15 points. were not just, you know, because of aberrational percentages and Minnesota seemed to sustain a pretty high percentage shooting system. Most of the year, A little bit of me is curious to see if he can continue next year. Uh, The likelihood is that it doesn't, though. Yeah, also, we have the players that Granlin was playing with. They're all kind of older, right? Like Koivu and and or Eric Stahl. I don't think actually Granlin played much with Eric Stahl. I think he was playing with Koivu. But I mean, Koivu at some point is going to slow down. So that's another reason maybe to bump him down a little. Okay, so uh, that is Granlin. What about Eric Stahl? Can he do it again? Well, Eric Stahl, actually, he ties very much into that. And as you mentioned, he was left available today for Vegas to consider. And I mean, he ties very much into Grandland for next year. Uh, so let's say the Golden Knights leave him. That is good for Mikhail Grandland. Like if the Knights take Matt Dumba instead because they feel like he feels a more important need. Because Stahl being able to take up a top six center role in Minnesota – that's what freed Grenland up to play the wing and get those points. So if Stahl is still around next year, that probably helps Grenland's chances of sticking with Koivu heading into training camp. As for Stahl's own scoring projections, he did see relatively favorable individual and on-ice shooting percentages, which we would expect to regress. We know Minnesota shooting was inflated on the whole through the year. I just mentioned that. But I can't tell yet exactly whether we should expect Stahl's personal shooting percentages to fall back down to where they were when he was in Carolina. Because when you're in Carolina, especially like in the three years before this one, uh, the shooting percentage territory for both, well, for all players and subsequently their on ice shooting percentage is just dreadful. So I'm going to be a little more conservative with Eric Stahl. I'm going to put his upside capped at about 60 points, but also think he can still put up 55 points if he holds on to the second line center role while still putting up not as good percentages shooting-wise as he did this year, but still better than he did in his Carolina days. Okay, yeah, that's the Brian that we all know and love, right? Like, he put up a 65-point season. You're going to say, oh, let's uh, let's say 60 uh, as the ceiling. And I think you're right. Also, he's getting older. He's going to be, like, 33 now. So, okay, uh, let's go to defense now. Let's do one defenseman and one goalie and then maybe a lightning round, and that will be a show. But, okay, I want to go to defense, and we have to talk about Justin Schultz after a pretty great rookie season where he scored 27 points in 48 games, which is a 46-point pace. Good for a defenseman, for sure. Schultz... Clearly never panned out for the Oilers. We all know about it. We all talked about it. Uh, He ended up getting shipped to Pittsburgh two seasons ago for peanuts. And then he put up a meager eight points in 18 games. That's actually not meager for a defense, but you know, nothing too exceptional. Then last year he started just the same as he had been going for the previous like few years of his career. He put up only six points in his first 23 games last season, but then he exploded for 45 points in his remaining 55 games, which are elite offensive numbers for a defenseman. He ended up with 51 points, but he put up a 67-point pace starting in December if you want to just start there. 
or you could just take the 51 points, which would still be amazing if you could do that. Again, a 67-point pace would make him like a top elite, elite guy. So it's like, and especially for someone who's never had above, like, what is it, 30 points, 31 points before last year. This was a huge surge for Justin Schultz. Warren to the spot on a Keeping Carlson Summer Series episode about impressive seasons. So, of course, the big elephant in the room, what we all know is, of course, Justin Schultz had a really good season, but that's only because Chris Letang got injured and he got to take over as a top power play defenseman. But next year, Letang will be healthy, and so he's not going to get the same opportunity. So we should expect his numbers to go down. But to that, I say, first... He started putting these numbers up before Latang got injured. If you recall, Brian, when week after week, I was like, is Justin Schultz going to keep this up? And you would say, nah, probably not. And then finally, when you said, oh, I guess, yeah, you better jump on him. It was probably too late. But then after that, then Latang got injured. And then, of course, you were like, as everyone was, like, grab him ASAP. Now he for sure won't slow down. Okay, so that's the first thing that he was able to put up a lot of these points, even with Latang in the lineup. But the second thing is, Come on, it's Chris Letang. He's not going to be healthy for all of next season. So even if Chris Letang is back and is on the top power play and Justin Schultz has to play on the second unit for a lot of the season, there's still going to be a good chunk of the season where Letang won't be there. He'll be injured. And Justin Schultz probably gets back on the top power play, maybe in an important week for you, maybe in your fantasy playoffs. I'm not putting it off the table that Chris Letang gets injured for fantasy playoffs again, like he did last year and screwed me in the couple, but that's a whole other story. Just to say, I think there are reasons to draft Justin Schultz, even if you think that he only did well because Chris Letang was injured. So, okay, Brian, this is a really hard guy to project because first of all, we have to decide were his 67 point pace that he put up while Letang was out or for most of the time when Latang was out, is that sustainable? Like, was he just getting lucky and having high shooting percentages and all that kind of thing? Like, or is that the kind of thing you can't expect him to repeat if Latang is out? And then, of course, then we have to consider, but how long will Latang be out for? So what are you thinking for Justin Schultz next season? His production, like, looks a little high for what he was doing, but I still think it could be decent, like, still better than I was willing to acknowledge at the start of the season. I eventually did get on the Justin Schultz train. I just needed a little bit of time, just like Justin Schultz needed when he got to Pittsburgh and still seemed like, oh boy, this is going to be a real problem. Um, If you're wondering where to draft him, you know, there are some leagues where Matt Niskanen is drafted every year just because of the expectation that he's going to give you decent peripherals and get enough power play opportunity to put up 10 points or more with the man advantage year after year. And this is sort of the territory in which I put Justin Schultz, except that you can expect fewer peripherals from him, but higher upside if he does get to step into a starring role. Now, Schultz came from Edmonton as somewhat of a reclamation project, and his confidence, and my confidence in him, was all but destroyed after he was tasked with doing things in Edmonton that he couldn't possibly do, and he received no support to make his pithy attempts attain any measure of success. So now, even if Schultz is playing second fiddle to Latang, I think he's a better player on the whole. He's recovered some of that confidence. He has that puck moving ability back and a lot of support from the team around him. So yeah, even if Latang is healthy, I feel like I am now reasonably expecting 35 points and some shots from Justin Schultz as a baseline. And of course, the upside is certainly there for more if and when Latang goes on the shelf. So Elon, actually, I have a question back for you. Uh, I want to wonder how you value Justin Schultz with that sort of assessment. Do you put him in your team's like fourth or fifth D spot? And like, what if holding him costs you the flexibility of nabbing an emerging free agent defenseman who's like going on a tear early in the season or in the middle of the season? How do you handle 
a guy like Justin Schultz? Is he someone you, you just want to hold and be patient with and hope for that opportunity while he contributes a little bit here and there? Or is that not worth your while? Okay, so first of all, 35 points as a baseline, even with Latang being healthy, that's not nothing, right? That's like pretty decent for a defenseman, no. especially if you're talking your fourth, fifth D spot. That's like really good. But let's say if it's a shallower league and let's say, you know, there's lots of 35, 40 point defensemen available in free agency, then it gets tough. I, I'll tell you one thing. I would much prefer to be on the side of benefiting from a Latang injury. This actually sounds mean, but like, you know, it sucks to like, get so frustrated every single time Chris Letang gets injured. So it'd be nice to be on the other side and be like, oh, that's too bad for Letang, but good for me. Woohoo! I have Justin Schultz. So I don't know. I think he's worth holding on to, right? Because I just am very confident that Chris Letang is going to get injured. And I'm sorry to say it sucks, but like I experienced it myself. But you look at the numbers, like when's the last time Chris Letang has played a full season? Like, has it ever happened? I, I, I could take a look now, but like we all know that there's going to be many opportunities during the season. I think he's worth holding on to. I draft him pretty high because I think when like you so Brian let me ask you let me flip it back to you let's say at the beginning of the year news came out oh Chris Letang has some injury I'm not saying this is going to happen but let's say news comes out Chris Letang out for the season okay let's say that comes out what what point pace then would you project Justin Schultz to have if you knew he was going to be the top power play defenseman for the whole season yeah I'll give him 50 point potential if that I, happens I think possibly point, more 50 point floor for me like yeah. top power play defenseman yeah. on Pittsburgh for sure 50 points yeah, no, you're right. You're right. That's totally fair. Uh, like, I know how you're never going to let us forget how you got personally screwed by Latang this year. And I get that. This year, people got more screwed than usual. Like, two years ago, he only missed 11 games. The year before that, he only missed 13. The year before, he missed half the season. The year before that, he just missed eight out of the, or seven out of 42 in the lockout shortened year. He has played one full season in his career back in 2010, 2011. And coincidentally, it was like, it was actually the first one where he really broke out. Like before that, he just looks like a 30 point guy. And then he put up 230 shots and 50 points in that full year. Uh, This past year, like if your league is a points league and it doesn't go by weekly matchups, if it's a cumulative league, Latang still got 34 points in 41 games, which beats out what you could hope for Justin Schultz in that second fiddle role. So perhaps, well, no, that's a silly thing. I was going to say, so maybe you should consider drafting Latang ahead of Schultz. Well, actually, I was, okay, now I'm, now I'm, now I'm <laughs> not sure because I was going to say, of course you draft Latang over Schultz. Do you, Elon? You yeah. just don't draft Latang. <laughs> well, the thing is, if like Chris Latang's falling to like third round or wherever a guy like Justin Schultz would be available, then I don't know, maybe you take the risk and you take Latang and just hope for the best just because you know he's going to do so well and he will be the top power play defenseman while he's there. It's a whole, it's a tough situation there. All I, I, is- I would take, I would take Latang over Justin Schultz, but I also would be confident in taking Justin Schultz pretty high just because he has a decent baseline of points even when Latang is there and then upside for so, so much more. So I would say at the end of the day, taking into account that I think Chris Letang will, let's say, be injured for 20 games, I'm going to say 40 to 45. I'll say 45 points for Justin Schultz next season. That's fair. If you're going to knock those off, those games off of Letang, then sure. Uh, One thing to consider if anyone chooses to be optimistic about Chris Letang, which if you've ever drafted him, uh, you know better. But if if you're like, oh, yeah, this year I'm going to be that guy. I'm going to get him at good value. This has got to be the longest layoff he's had in his career. He hasn't played since, I don't know, I'm going back in injury reports. If, if you look at his game log, I'm sure it would be easier to, to see, but definitely sometime in February or March is when this all went down. 
and he is going to have eight months off essentially till he sees regular season action again. So you have to hope that that will be enough for all his various ailments to heal and for him to come back stronger than ever. But I still don't know that I'm going to be the one who takes the risk. Yeah, for those counting at home, February 25th, he didn't play. So the last time he played was February 21st, and then ever since then, he did not. He had an, an assist in his last game, of course. Uh, Chris is hang. He was so good, and then he got injured. Okay, one more player, Brian. This guy's obvious, right? If we're going to talk about a goalie who last year surprised all of us, we would have to hand back our fantasy hockey podcasting license if we didn't bring up Sergey. Bobrovsky, which I don't know why I just did that, copying the popular way of saying his name from those TSN guys back in the day. It was so fun. Okay, but yeah, Bobrovsky, I mean, what is there to say? He was elite in 2012-13. He had a 9.32 save percentage. He won the Vesna Trophy. Everyone was like, oh my God, Sergei Bobrovsky, so good. And then he followed that up with a 9.23 save percentage, which was like, that's still really good. Then 9.18, then 9.08. He was like falling very consistently each year from the previous year. So obviously going into last season, people weren't too excited. Like maybe we were saying, no, he's not going to fall again. Maybe he could even climb a little bit, you know, higher than 908, maybe get to league average if we're lucky. Who was projecting a 931 save percentage last year and a ton of wins to go along with it because all of a sudden Columbus was like an elite scoring team. So it was a huge surprise for most people, like Brian and myself included. But now, like, how do we decide where to project him for next year? How does a goalie go from a 908 save percentage to years ago to a 931 last year and then we have to decide where we think he'll land next year like which is the real Bobrovsky like I guess the easy answer would be somewhere in the middle maybe like slightly above league average maybe like 920 Columbus is clearly a good team but also we saw them getting especially good results on the power play that they weren't able to continue throughout the whole season so maybe they get a few fewer wins and and also Bobrovsky's save percentage will probably go down at least a bit so I'd love to know like where would you rank Bobrovsky at this point I feel like in most drafts he's going to go as like a top five goalie based on the results last year but I don't know I just can't see myself doing it but am I crazy to not think that Bobrovsky will be amazing again after that season he just gave us no, you're not crazy. It's nice that we still saw that Sergei Bobrovsky has an elite side. And at the end of the day, I think he's an above average NHL goalie. And you look at the team level and see that Columbus has gotten incrementally better over the last few years. It's suppressing shots. Although I think the most noticeable change has been in where the shots are coming from that Bobrovsky is facing. If you look at the heat map, and by the way, whenever I say heat map, I'm talking about these really great maps that you get over at hockeyviz.com. I can't remember like if this is specifically something for subscribers, but we we subscribe to uh, to Blake McCurdy, or you might know him as at Ineffective Math on Twitter on Patreon. We subscribe, uh, and you get access to all sorts of great little nice charts and player tools and maps. So one of them is this heat map, and it shows shots allowed at even strength is a relative number compared to the rest of the league. So you look at Columbus's heat map for shots allowed at even strength. And it's mostly a neutral white that you see with a couple light blue areas indicating that the Blue Jackets suppress more shots from those locations than league average. And a couple light red areas that suggest the Blue Jackets allowed more shots from those locations compared to the league average. But there is one fiery red area on that heat map that is just screaming out for attention where they allowed way more shots than other teams. And that is actually right in the slot. It looked as though Columbus was happy to keep peripheral shots from getting on net. Like they were 
doing this tactically. And then they relied on Bobrovsky to handle whatever went on the ice directly in front of him. They just put full faith in him. And I wonder if they knew that this was a situation in which he could succeed. Like this was a way that they were playing to their goalie's strength. So that's my team level musing on the situation because we know goalies are voodoo and trying to assess their individual performances is still a tough thing to do. It's so smart though. What a smart uh, strategy. You know that Bobrovsky can handle himself in the slot and like you just want him to be able to see shots. So, you know, preventing point shots goes a long way for that. If you bring in all the shots up close, there's a greater chance he's going to see them and that way stop them if you really trust in his ability. Again, this is sort of blue skying it from my perspective, uh, but it all does wrap up with me saying that I think he can return to his above average standing again next year. Uh, 9.31, I don't know that I'm ready to go there, but I am ready to say above average in the low 920s. Okay, yeah, that seems about right. That's probably where I'd put it. Maybe even that's a little optimistic maybe i'm being hard on him i don't know so we'll obviously talk more about Bobrovsky and all the other goalies in i guess a couple of months for or less than that at this point anyways in our schmore goaliesborg extravaganza that we do every year where we'll go through every single goalie in the nhl and tier them and decide who's better than who and obviously it'll be an interesting discussion to see how high we put Bobrovsky. does he join the ranks of like the carry prices and the holtbys or you know is he still pretty far below so okay okay brian so those are the main players i wanted to talk about this episode who had surprisingly good seasons. There's still a few more I have on a list here that you know we're not going to dig as deep into, but this probably will be our last episode where we look back on these surprisingly good seasons. So I want to throw some more names at you, maybe a quick like sustainable or fleeting section of the show. You'll just say whether you think they could keep it up if they're for real or whether they're going to go back down again. So I wanted to start with Victor Arvidsson, who had 61 points in 71 games last year. This is a guy who before that, he's only 24 years old, but you know he the year before he played 56 games, only had 16 points. It was really so surprising and I don't think many people were projecting I remember though Brian you were saying at the beginning of the season look out for this Victor Arvidsson so you kind of called up I don't think you were projecting that he would be as good as he ended up being getting 31 goals and being like a fixture on the top line the top power play do you think it'll happen again can he get 61 points again next year I do I think he can do it again next year I think he might even be able to get a little more if he can cash in a little more often on the power play he had just nine power play points last season he did have seven shorthanded points as well, though. So maybe if you combine all those special teams points, it still comes out to about the same amount in like the low teens. Uh, but yes, I am confident that Victor Arvidsson can do this again at the start of this season. We said that he is someone to watch who can get up on that top line with Forsberg and Johansson and play an important role. He did. He filled that role. And I believe he's going to be asked to do it again next year. All right, so definitely don't forget about Victor Arvidsson come draft day. Okay, Brian, how about in Carolina? Jeff Skinner played his second, actually a third, pretty much healthy season in a row. So all this, you know, a lot of people talk about Jeff Skinner as a guy who is very injury prone, is going to get concussions, but he's been healthy for a while. And last year, he finally broke out to the potential that we saw back in his rookie season. He had 63 points in his rookie year with 31 goals. Last year, 37 goals and 63 points. Again, so a huge year huge bounce back for Jeff Skinner who the year before did okay he did, had 51 points and the year before that he only had 31 points so he had really really fallen but now back to being almost a 40 goal scorer like I said 63 points and again a ton of shots like he always seems to get but 281 shots that's the most he's ever taken in his career last year do you think Jeff Skinner will once again give you 280 shots 60 plus points and like 35 plus goals 
I think there's a decent shot of, of the shot. You stole my thunder. I was going to say how he had a career high in shots on goal, and that's what was really exciting. He Scoop also job. had uh, a career second best in shooting percentage at all strengths and uh, also at even strength. So maybe you can expect some regression there, but it is really heartening to see in the season where he played the most minutes, he took a lot of advantage of using those minutes to take shots on goal. This was his third highest shots per 60 total of his career, but now, yeah, he's established. He's in an important role in Carolina who could be getting a little more offensively able. So I'm going to dock him a few points. I'm not going to say 63 necessarily. I'm going to say you can count on him for 60. Ooh, minus three for Jeff Skinner. Yeah. Or like maybe minus a few more. I, I guess, uh, I guess you want me to know, you want me to say if he can get to 63 again, I, you know, part of me, I've liked him for so long. I want him to get there. I think odds are against him getting this high again next year. Yeah. Do you well, notice like, how slowly I say that? That's that that explains just how sure I am of my projection. Well, you know, I don't think he played much with Eric Stahl. Maybe our listeners could remind me if I'm mistaken. Tweeted us at Keeping Carlson, but you know, last year he had some good line mates in like Carolina. You know, they're really coming into their own as a team that has a lot of good options. Like if he's going to play with a guy like Sebastian Ajo, who I think we have high hopes for next year, there's Elias Lindholm potentially as a line mate. Then you've got Toivo Teravainen. Like he has potential to have better line mates than he's had in the past if these guys could all take steps forward. So I think it's possible. Like, I don't know, 60 points for Jeff Skinner seems great and always a great guy to take in fantasy because of all those shots. And I think you could probably forget now that I hope I'm not jinxing him now, but you could probably forget about him being an injury risk. I think you could draft him safely. Okay, let's go to Columbus for a couple of guys. This guy, Cam Atkinson, is a lot like Mikhail Granlund in that there was high hopes for him year after year, and he never was able to deliver. He had like 40 points, then 40. Then two seasons ago, he had 53 points. And then last year was his breakout, especially at the start of the year. He ended with 62 points, 35 goals. If you look at his splits, though, he really surged at the start of the year. Like He had 16 points in 14 games in November, then 17 points in 14 games in December. Then he kind of slowed down near the end of the year. So maybe that's concerning for him at the end of the day. Like I said, he ended up with 62 points. I'm talking about Cam Atkinson. So do we think that he maybe has upside for more if he could just do the same at the start of the year, but then actually keep it up? Or do we think maybe this was even too high for him and he'll go back to being closer to a 50-point guy than a 60-point guy? And then I guess I'll, I'll say the other guy also on Columbus that I wanted to bring up is Alex Wenberg, who's only 22 years old. So he's young and who knows where he'll end up. But obviously he took a huge step forward this year. He ended up with 59 points in 80 games, a ton of them on the power play. He was a fixture on that top unit. Before that, he had 40 points in the previous season and then 20 points the year before that. So clearly a breakout for Wenberg. So both of them ended up hovering around 60 points which direction do you see them going for next year? I would love it if Cam Atkinson could stand pat at 35 goals on 240 shots. Outstanding. That is also a career-high shots on goal total for him, even though his per-60 rates have been really consistent over the past several years. This year he was uh, attempting a little more than he had in, well, most of the last few seasons. Uh, but in terms of actual shots getting to the net, it stayed pretty consistent. For the last four years, I like uh, I like him there. I'm going to say I've got him for 60 points. I know uh, people like Dauber, they have him at 70. They think he can push this. I would be still reluctant to say that he can push the 62 he's at. Uh, I would like him to just get back there next year. And Wenberg, uh, I think I'm going to dock a few points. I'm going to have him more uh, closer to the 55 range. 
Oh, that's not even that much of a doc, though. I thought you were going to say closer to a 50-point range, because I know you he benefited a lot from that strong yeah. play at the start of the year. Yeah, I mean, I just don't know where he fits in. Like, he could be the number one center in Columbus next year, which means he gets to play with Cam Atkinson and Brandon Saad, and just being there, I think, should be good enough for 55 points. I definitely do stand by what I said all season long, which is that, yeah, he did disproportionately benefit from that huge Columbus power play. He had 23 power play points this season. I feel like you can take 10 off, which would put him down to 49 points on the season. Uh, But I'll give him a bonus few by thinking he's going to play an important role. And I think he's a good hockey player too. Just don't count on him for a lot of shots. Yeah, that's a big knock on him. But you will get a lot of special teams points to make up for maybe the lack of shots. If, you know, they well, he'll definitely be there. We'll see if Columbus could do as well on the power play. Okay, one more. Oh, you have your hand up. Yeah, well, to be honest, like I kind of wanted to say 50-55 for Wenberg, but I feel like uh, I felt like that would have been mean. I don't want to be the wet blanket. I guess it's my job. I would be, a, okay, I'm going to call it a cautious 55 points. Well, what if we were to make a bet right now over or under 54 and a half points where you can take the over or the under? I'm willing to make the bet with you and take the under. Yeah, no, I think I think I might lean towards the under. So that 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 says more about how I'm feeling. Okay. All right. And let's end the show. One more guy. So we're going down a little bit from the 60 point guys. How about a guy who only had 52 points last year, but it was a surge. Anders Lee on the Islanders. Before that, his highest was 41 points three years ago. And then last year or two seasons ago, he had 36 points in 80 games. And last year, a really nice improvement, 52 points in 81 games. And actually, you know, he pulled a bit of a Justin Schultz. Like he was doing nothing at the start of the year. Like if you look at his splits, Anders Lee had only one point in October in nine games and only five points in 13 games in November. So I think we're looking at closer to a 60 point pace if you start in December. So I think that he, you know, and he started playing consistently with John Tavares on the top line and on the top power play. He's pretty decent for shots. Like I really like him. I think he's for sure. I'd say 52 points is like a floor. I think he's going to beat that. I like him as a potential 55 to 60 point guy. So I'm actually apprehensive about any New York Islander, especially after seeing the protected list today. Another reason to be apprehensive about Andrews Lee is his power play shooting percentage was probably higher than it should have been. Uh, his personal even strength shooting percentage was 16%, which is very high for comparison. Well, it's not a fair comparison. The year before, it was at 4%. But the two years before that, only one of them was even close to a full season, though, was at 11%. So he's posted like a very average, one very low, and one very high shooting percentage in each of his three seasons. And so it's hard to know exactly what he's going to put up next year. I think line mates and deployment are going to be a huge part of his success. I'm going to say, though, uh, definitively, I don't share your optimism for him. I feel like 52 points is a very reasonable amount to project for him next season, especially if you're going to account for some individual shooting percentage regression and some on-ice shooting percentage regression and just some weird Islanders front office stuff that they always tend to do. Well, I'm going to go a bit higher. Lewis, I think, agrees with me here in the chat room. He's saying, good pick. I got him in March, and he helped me win the keeper. And then he's saying he'll likely stick with Tavares, and then maybe the Islanders will be able to put together a good second line that requires defending, and then that would help him as well. So we'll see. I like Andres Lee for at least 55. So I'll, I'll plant my flag there. Brian, this was fun. What a jam-packed show we had. We talked about the trades. We talked about the protection list. We talked about all these surprising seasons. Hopefully you listeners enjoyed the show that we put together for you in 
in the middle of june if you like the show obviously we'd love to hear from you or if you didn't like the show let us know why at keeping carlson on twitter we'd love to hear your feedback if you want to help support the show you can sign up to be a patron of keeping carlson we have a promotion going on over the summer where you can sign up for any amount you could be a patron for one dollar a month and get all of the amazing features we provide such as membership in our patron only facebook group where we're going to be very active over the next few weeks so why not just sign up to get all of our thoughts right away with vegas and to be able to share and talk with all the really smart awesome fun patrons then we also have our monthly patron cast we're going to be doing our next patron cast we're going to push it we're not going to do it at the end of june we're going to push it to july 5th so that we have time to digest all of the free agent signings that will happen so the patrons are going to get our first takes about what we think about all the trades and free agent signings that happen after the july 1st deadline so you definitely want to be a patron for that so if you're interested at all check out keepingcarlson.com slash patron for more information also like brian said at the beginning of the show we have those links if you want to look into becoming a bone marrow donor you can go to keepingcarlson.com slash dauber can if you're in canada or keepingcarlson.com slash dauber us if you're in the u.s once again we're rooting for you dauber and we really wish you a fast and successful recovery with that brian let's cue the outro music and why don't you read us the credits? All right. This episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast was presented by Dauber Hockey and supported by our patrons. It was researched with help from Dauber Hockey, Frozen Pool, Hockey Analysis, Hockey Reference, Hockey Database, Dauber Prospects, Elite Prospects, Habs Eyes on the Prize, uh, Jets Nation, and Garrett Hole answered a question for me on Twitter, Hockey Wilderness, an article by Andrew Berkshire over at Sportsnet, Roto World and Fantrax. What are these re- hockey wilderness? What's that? That's the Minnesota Wild blog over at SB Nation. And what was the Montreal one again? Had eyes on the prize. Check it out. I guess you'll link <laughs> to all of these in the show notes. I wasn't planning on it. You can just go there. You're listening to their names now. Okay, so hope you like the show. Good job, Brian. Great research with all of these players. And thank you all for listening. Like I said, we'll be back at you with a bonus episode next week with Cameron Robinson to talk about the draft and the Vegas expansion. And then we'll be back at you with our next regular episode on July 9th. Though the patrons will hear from us sooner. Until then, keep on keeping Carl's son.